Please uh, keep your Bibles open, Jude. I would only preach from verse 1 to 4, but we felt it important that we would read the entire book just for context so that we know where, where we are. It's really great to, to be here among you today and to bring God's word and also to learn that Ghanaian um, uh, chorus, really, really good to, to think of the breadth um, of the continent and also to hear uh, prayer um, for, for Africa, uh, particularly the, among the unreached people groups, that the gospel would be, would be proclaimed. So I'm hugely encouraged uh, to be part of you this morning. Let me pray and then we begin our reflection together. Our Father and our God, in the name of Jesus, we come to you as your children who are hungry and in need of feeding. We come drawn from various uh, activities of the week. And Lord, there would be those among us who are hurting. There would be those among us who are anxious. There will be those among us who are just carrying on with life normally. There are those who are tired. There are those who are excited and rejoicing over some recent success or uh, event. And so we come as a mixed group of people, but eager for one thing, that you would feed us. And so we sit at your feet, as it were, and long for the very words of God, the very words that are life-giving to come down to us and to refresh our weary bodies, to remind us of the gospel and to draw us closer and closer to yourself. So come, we pray, and speak to us. Please use me not to hinder your word, but that, Lord, it may flow unhindered for the praise and glory of your name. Amen. Jude is a short book, but it is packed with a, a lot of um, material. It's been debated um, over many years um, you know, whether Jude um, should actually have been included in the canon of Scripture. I think a few people have uh, a bit of trouble with the reference that he makes in verse 14 uh, to Enoch because he quotes from a, um, a book that is not in the Bible. And so that's a bit of a trouble for some scholars. But certainly Jude um, has a lot to say to us today. He writes to remind the church of the need for constant vigilance, that we might stay strong as God's people in the faith and to oppose all heresy, to remind us that the falling away from the gospel is always close at hand and that we need to stand up to guard the gospel. And so as we focus on those four verses, which I'll read again in a moment, um, it is a call to be on guard. And so the reminder for us this morning is that we might stand and defend, or rather contend, for the gospel, for the faith that has been delivered to us. Let me just read through those four verses and then um, get into it. He identifies himself as Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James. To those who have been called, who are loved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. 
Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to lie to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who provide the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. We have a reason to contend. And so Jude is calling us to contend, and he then gives us a pattern of contending. We live in a time when the gospel is under threat. In my own continent, although it is an area where you would imagine the gospel is thriving, given the numbers of people who are converted every Sunday, the gospel is always under threat. One writer said that we are always a generation away from losing the gospel. And it's therefore exciting for me and for us as a, a community of believers when we see young children among us on a Sunday morning. Because if the gospel is not passed on to the next generation, then most certainly it is lost. There are many enemies to the gospel. In my own context, um, that might be prosperity gospel. It might be liberalism that is slowly and subtly sneaking in to the Kenyan church in particular, but even to the wide African church. It could be African traditional religion, the fear for curses, and the desire for blessing that could be a threat to the gospel. Perhaps here in the West, it could be popular thought, liberal thinking, and maybe just rejection of the tradition, because this has been traditionally a very strong Christian country. And so as a rebellion against that, people may be turning away from the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I need to say to us that it is not a new thing that the gospel is under threat it has always been the case. One scholar uh, compared how the gospel has been understood in various places, in various times, and he said that when the gospel was in Palestine in the early days of the church, it was a small Palestinian fellowship, but it didn't take long for the gospel to be under threat from persecution. It was only a small group of people who were gathering together in home from home to home, breaking bread together. And it appears to us like that was just a perfect kind of church. But not long after that, as we know from the book of Acts, it was scattered and it was threatened by persecution. The result of that, as you know, is that people spread far and wide. And the gospel survived by the grace of God. In fact, persecution did not actually finish or kill the gospel. If anything, it enabled the gospel to spread further afield. 
And where it spread, it was within Greek cities. Perhaps Greek or Roman cities like Corinth, Antioch, and other places, where the gospel was now no longer a fellowship of small group of people, but as it merged into the Greek-thinking cities, it became a philosophy, a way of life among um, these people who are oriented to the Greco uh, or to the Greek um, culture, the Hellenistic culture. And you'd have thought that as the gospel faced the threat of the existing philosophies, that it would die. But by the grace of God, it actually enriched the philosophical roots of the gospel, that it could be understood and that people like Paul would strongly defend it as a faith that is credible and that is strong to withstand the storms of time. And his scholar goes on to say that the gospel doesn't stop there. It gets to Rome. And when it comes into the Roman uh, thinking world, when uh, Constantine is converted, you now imagine what is going to happen to the gospel. A lot has been said about the conversion of Constantine. Whether that was a good thing for the gospel or that was a bad thing. And maybe we don't have the last word on that. But all we know is that as the gospel thrived through the Roman times, it became an institution. The church became institutionalized and became quite structured in its operations. And sure enough, the institution became a threat to the gospel. It's interesting how these, you have a positive and a negative to it. So it's a good, it's institutionalized. It now can spread and can go to every corner. It obtains terms like dioceses, which are Roman institutional terms. It becomes hierarchical, maybe a lot more organized, and it will spread into the extents of the Roman Empire, including the very place where we are today in Britain. But that very institution will become the threat to the gospel. But the Lord in his wisdom will then raise those who will stand against the luxury of the time and the money and they will escape into the desert. There will be monks and the Lord will preserve for nearly a thousand years the light of the gospel in these monasteries because the gospel continues. But the gospel then makes its way into this country that is beautiful and that the Lord has given you and arises in Britain then the great power of the world. And what does it morph into when it comes into these isles of Great Britain? Now it changes and it becomes a culture. Among the British, the gospel becomes a civilization. It becomes a way of life. It is now not a fellowship or a philosophy. Neither is it an institution. Now the British people own it they anglicize it and they turn it into a civilization. They then use that influence to spread it all over the world across the great British Empire. But that very civilization itself and that very way of life will also soon become a threat to the gospel. Forces within it. Um, people will reject it. New movements as the culture changes 
then the gospel which remains only true and is not changing with the times will be threatened by the uh, changing civilization. The Lord will, however, not leave himself without a witness, and he will raise men and women who will then to stand to proclaim the truth of the gospel as is our witnesses today. I shouldn't say much more, for time fails me. But this scholar's analysis goes on to say that uh, in the last century, um, the gospel goes off to America. It becomes the big sending nation for missionaries, and people will come out of America all over the world to spread the gospel. And he says, when it gets to the American, or uh, from the American side, it becomes an enterprise. It is now pushed almost as a product. It is now sold out, like, uh, like by salesmen. Great evangelistic meetings and big tent revivals, which are characteristic of American enterprise. But that very ideal of an enterprise, good as it is, also sows the seeds of prosperity gospel, which now threatens the gospel itself. But it is amazing how the Lord is raising many people to stand against these forces of false teaching and retaining himself witnesses. Many have said that perhaps now is the opportunity for Africa to arise in Asia, where the numbers are, and maybe where a lot of people are still excited about the gospel. And the big question then is, what will the gospel be when it comes to Africa? Now, we don't perhaps have yet an answer, but maybe one of the predominant thoughts and one of the Africa's contribution maybe to world thinking might be the idea of Ubuntu, which is community. And our prayer would be that there would be strong sense of community from our own continent that would contribute to the uh, thinking of the gospel, that the gospel calls us into a community. Maybe almost going back to the Palestinian fellowship. But even that stands to be threatened. Our communities become uh, increasingly self-serving. Even that sense of community can be a threat and will be a threat to the gospel because communities can be self-serving. Communities can be insular, can be just there for our own good. At the moment, um, we face serious challenges of the gospel. And I'll be showing you some pictures in a minute. We face a problem. People form um, communities, but these are not always um, helpful communities. So, For example, in my own country, we have this gentleman. He calls himself and is uh, variously called the mighty prophet of God with a massive following in our country. And he gets even supermarkets to, to, to welcome him. And, and Tuskis is certainly not a, not a small enterprise. It is a medium-tire supermarket which you know, you know, welcomes this mighty prophet of God into their town. And when he's arriving, suddenly a, you know, a grand arrival, um, what happens is that people really get excited and uh, his followers clean the streets, literally, before mighty prophet of God or war arrives. Not only that, we find big communities 
like this 25,000-seater auditorium um, in Nairobi, which houses the Word of Faith Chapel, uh, oftentimes known as Winner's Chapel, or popularly known as Winner's Chapel, which is preaching prosperity and becomes a big community, which is proclaiming health and wealth and your best day now. What then will happen? What will happen to the gospel? Well, we don't need to look to these examples. We need to come back to Jude and to hear what the Lord has for us to say. Dear friends, he writes to us. He's very eager to write to us, particularly reminding us of the faith, the salvation which we share. But he calls us to an even more urgent task. And he calls us to contend for the gospel. Of the three points I'll speak about, here is the first one. A call to contend. He says, I felt compelled to write and to urge you to, to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. And when I thought about those words, to contend, it means it is a it is, it's a call to a strenuous, active, intentional effort. You, you don't just contend without expending energy and time and resources. It is a call not just to sign up for something. You see, when, when they have a campaign out there, you know, they might say, here is a is a petition that we want to present to, to Parliament or to the Prime Minister. And you can show your support by signing the petition. Oftentimes, you'll be clicking on a link, isn't it? And then you forget about whatever the petition was. That's not the call that Jude is giving us here. He's calling us to contend, which calls us into active defense. It is a call to arms, so to speak. It is a call to fight. It is rallying people against an enemy. It is not an easy call. It is a call to a strenuous, active, intentional effort and fight against an enemy. And he is very, very clear that we have to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to God's holy people. Now, oftentimes, Christians have a problem with that very idea of fighting. Sometimes we think it is God's work. And we think our mind oftentimes goes back to Mount Carmel. You know, if the Lord is God, he will fight for himself. You know, and if Baal is God, then suddenly he will bring the fire down. And so there is this contention between who is the Lord, Yahweh or this idol. So the Lord will fight for himself. And we can, we can feel that, oh yeah, I, I have nothing to do. The Lord will fight his own battles. And suddenly, on almost every occasion, we see the Lord will fight it for himself. The Lord will raise up Jesus. He will have him on the cross. And then he will raise him on the third day. Brothers and sisters, this is entirely God's work. I need to say that in no uncertain times. That we are not his warriors who will fight for him. But rather, we are the soldiers who will fight with him. 
Praise the Lord. And I need to say that it is entirely God's work, but it is also fully and certainly our work. When we are thinking about the revival and the awakening of the nations, when we are thinking of evangelism, the beauty of it is that it's 100% God's work to bring conviction to hearts of men. But it is also fully our work to share the good news of our risen Savior with our neighbors. And therefore, it is God's work, and it is also our work. It is our work. We will not sit back like those who sign on petitions about some issue that they are half-heartedly interested about, and they then forget about it. We will not be those who just tick a box and then forget about whatever the cause was. No, we will be those soldiers of the cross who will stand up and take arms because the enemy is a threat to the gospel. Point number two, a reason to contend. Now, the reason is very clear. Verse four, certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. And he says on, they are ungodly people. What do they do? They pervert the grace of our God, the gospel, into a license for immorality. And they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Now that, that's, that's a serious issue. Why must we contend? Well, the short answer is because the gospel is threatened. False teachers have crept in among you. Now, there are many things that the New Testament addresses. Issues of morality and how Christians should live. Issues of church governance and how we should um, um, exercise authority as God's people. There are many topics that the New Testament addresses. But one of them that is perhaps given a lot of time is false teaching because it is almost always a threat to the gospel. Acres and acres of space is dedicated. Whole books like Colossians are dedicated to false teaching. And this is what Jude is saying to us. Certain individuals have crept in among you. He is writing to those who have been called doesn't specify where. Imagine it is the entire body of Christ. And that then includes you and I. It includes our time. Certain individuals have crept in among you. And when we think of us as a whole body of Jesus Christ, certainly there are those individuals who have crept in among us. And they have an agenda. And their agenda is... They pervert the gospel, the grace of God. They turn it into a license for evil, liberalism. And they deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. And they put themselves up as the Lord uh, that, that, that then needs to be worshipped. They are like these people who set themselves as the alternative Lord. What a reason to contend. False teaching spreads like gangrene. And so does Paul warn young Timothy. We've got to be very careful 
about false teaching. That's the reason we have to contend. This is serious. It is like a disease that works its way. It's like yeast that works its way into the whole dog. We have to arise to fight for the gospel. But I need to move on to the last point, a pattern for contending. How then must, might we contend? Now certainly if we were to work our way through the whole book, we would see more of it. But, but my, my interest this morning is actually to, to focus on the first four verses. But we see a bit of a pattern, a glimpse of a pattern of contending for the gospel. And can I just suggest from verse 1 and 2 a pattern of contending for the gospel? And I see three ways or three um, glimpses of how we will contend for the gospel. And the first one is we will contend as servants of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, where it all begins, really, it is um, when we see ourselves as servants. That's the example that Jesus gives us, to be servants. The word really is slaves, those who are bored servants, who are sold out to the service of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Jude's own self-introduction, a servant of Jesus Christ. As he comes to fight, he's not coming to it as a general He's not coming to it as a lord and a master, but a servant of Jesus Christ in submission to our commanding officer, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. First and foremost, who am I in this army? A servant. A servant of Jesus Christ. A brother of James, identifying with others in the family. That's, that's who we are. Foot soldiers. Servants. And that's our place. That's, you know, we are to receive orders. Because we are servants. It's not our war. It is his war. And we are to take orders from him and execute those orders. So we are to contend as servants of Jesus in obedience to him. He calls us to service, not lordship. He calls us to humility, not power. He calls us to submission, not affluence. He calls us to service, not manipulation or control. That's servant. He got to roll up our sleeves and be ready to serve. But secondly, as a pattern of contending, we contend from a point of relationship. To those who have been called, says Jude, who are loved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That's beautiful. What, what a description of God's people. To those who have, been called, who have been called, who are loved in God. Sense of identity here. Kept for Jesus. And that's special, that we are contending from a point of relationship. Think of those words, called, beloved, kept. 
one commentator was saying, this is like a Trinitarian view of the introduction. You find Jude, servant of Jesus, brother of James in three. Those who have been called, loved, and kept. And in verse two, mercy, peace, and love. It's interesting uh, Trinitarian way of putting these things in threes. But that's, 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 a, that's a point there. We are contending from a point of relationship. Not from a point of just mere human anger and dissatisfaction. It is because of who we are, those who have been called. It is because we already belong. We're not trying to belong. So we contend from that point, not because we are offended, not because we are personally feeling this is you know, this is mine. I am, I, am, I am really, I'm looking for that great crown and it's all about me. No. It's from a point of relationship. Because of who the Father is. Because of what he has done in Jesus Christ and what he has done then, he has kept me for him. Therefore, I will arise to go and serve him. I'm not just this uh, over-excited um, uh, warrior or, uh, you, know, you know, out there trying to seek my own glory. No, it's because of who I am and who the Father is and what he has done for me in Christ that I will stand. And so that's, that's yet another glimpse of a, of a pattern. But lastly, is that our tools of contention are given to us. So we contend in mercy, peace, and love. Look at verse 2. What he says, even before he lays out the agenda, may mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. You know, that's, that, that, those are important. Those are important. It might sound like just a wish, which is a typical um, way of introducing your letter. You wish people good health and, and, and you wish them well. And he will close his letter with a wish that they would be doing well and that they may stand well in God. It's also important to see that even before he lays this very strong agenda you know, on the table, he says, mercy, peace, and love be yours, which is important because later on, you know, he will call us to show mercy even to those who are doubting. You know, he will call us to love, you know, to do it all in love and respectfully. He will call us to do that. But that's, that's an important how we are going to do it. We are going to do it in mercy, peace, and love. Whenever false teaching comes up, um, say on the internet, on social media, you don't find a lot of mercy, peace, and love. Twitter warriors, the Twitterati, will not always be very generous to each other. If it's a matter that particularly, um, you know, uh, comes very close to us, maybe as God's people, maybe identified with a particular theological position. And someone else opposed to that, or who has a different viewpoint, is really fighting against us. The temptation can be to get there, to get there in, and to, to get all the tools and all our, you know, all our uh, vocabulary to fight, and all our theological um, gear to, to go and defend our own. 
And oftentimes we are not fighting for the Lord. We are fighting from our little corner. We are fighting for our theological persuasions. We are fighting for our community and for our identities. And oftentimes, and sadly so, we could even be fighting for our culture rather than the gospel. Young people particularly, they always love a theological fist fight. Let's take it outside. Oftentimes, it is let's take it to Facebook or Twitter. Mercy, peace, and love be yours. These are the tools. We are to be peacekeepers. We are to do this with gentleness. And we've got to be careful what we are known for. I listened to a radio show not too long ago on one of the radio stations in Nairobi. It's called Truth FM, ironically. And on this show, there was this uh, teacher you know, who went on and on um, talking about blessing and the need to be rich. And he argued, unbelievably, that unless you are rich, there are certain things you cannot access. There are certain blessings that you just won't have. Won't believe it, but he said that uh, the man um, um, who got the right to take down Jesus' body from the cross got access to Pilate because he was rich. And therefore the argument went that unless you are rich, there are certain things you will not access from God. Therefore you need to be rich. And the way to be rich is actually to sow, to, to plant a seed, to give to this ministry. And if you do, then you will be on your way to riches. And then when you are rich, of course, there are certain blessings, so to speak, that you can draw from God. And I was feeling incensed about that. How can you see that? This is outrageous. And because True the Fam is run by a minister to have a lot of respect for, I thought I'll get on board and, uh, you know, go on and tag them on, on Facebook and actually say, this is outrageous. This is false teaching. This is misleading people. Jesus was poor. And he's not calling us to riches. He's calling us to his riches in glory. But he's not calling us to his riches in the bank. So, I mean, you could get incensed, and uh, maybe there's a place for those who the Lord calls, particularly for public fights. And as I tagged through the firm, because I actually did this, as I tagged them on, on to Facebook, because I didn't want this post to go public, one brother thought that I went overboard. And he, he, he did a, a private message, and he said, Brother, it's great what you're doing, but people will... Um, maybe not take the message positively. And he said, when it is dark in a room, we do not go about fighting darkness. We put the switch on, or we bring in the lamp, and there is light in the entire room. And he said, we've got to be careful as Christians to be known not for what we are against and what we fight against, but what we are for. And I thought, that's, that's great wisdom. Thank you, Christian. You know, he, he's called Christian, his first name. <laughs> Interestingly, yeah. 
I really appreciated Christian's advice. And we've got to be careful that we are not known so much for what we fight against than what we stand for, that we are for the gospel. I did contend, and he did say so, that there may well be a place for public apologetics. And maybe that's not for everybody. But there is a place for everybody to stand for the gospel. And I was helped by my brother. So dear friends, we are called to fight. We are called to contend for the gospel. There is a clear reason why we must contend. And the pattern is this, to contend as servants of Jesus Christ, not servants of ourselves who are pushing our own brand out there. And to contend from a point of relationship, not of anger and of selfish interest, but rather to contend in mercy, peace, and love, with gentleness and love, even for those who oppose us. May the Lord bless us.